to the next community podcast. I am Angelo Luciani, and from Tech Reckoning, we have John Mark Troyer. Hey, Angelo. How's it going? Good. How are you doing, John? I'm doing fabulous. Great. Laura could not be with us today, but as they say, the show must go on. <laughs> and on today's show, we interviewed and chatted with Jonathan Kohler, who's a consulting architect with Nutanix, and we talked about all things disaster recovery and business continuity, and that's that's quite a mouthful, if you will. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good interview, Angelo. Yeah, I actually, Jonathan brought up um, many good points, a lot of insights onto different experiences from different companies he's worked with. One of the items I, I thought was interesting is where we asked him about how popular, if you will, are active-active versus active passive data centers for uh, disaster recovery. And I was always under the impression, at least, active-active was becoming uh, the norm, if you will. And it turns out, as Jonathan mentions in, in the interview, uh, no, uh, active-passive are still um, mainstream. Well, Angelo, do you think that's just because of the – is it because of the – the management or the apps? I mean, a lot of apps don't want to be in two places at once, and um, traditional legacy apps may not be able to handle active-active clustering. Yeah, I think it's it's apps. I also think, and he mentions uh, infrastructure, not all of the infrastructure can be active-active aware, which I thought was, uh, was interesting. Um, I, my personal experience, I've always worked with uh, active-passive data centers, but always try to uh, look for ways to go active, active, um, but just never, never seemed to, to pan out for me. Yeah, well, it, was, it was interesting to me to just really talk about availability in general and continuity. Even though I've worked with this technology for, for you know over a decade, and I'm familiar with lots of different vendors and what they do and and a lot of the concepts. Somehow in my head, I was still thinking, okay, we're th- we're talking about backups today. And and I don't know why. It just a, kind of a light bulb went on my head that no, no, wait a minute. We're talking about replication. We're talking about snapshots. We're talking about we're talking about metadata versus data. We're talking about multiple copies of data. We're talking about putting it in you know stretch clusters. We talked about metro clusters. I don't know the whole concept of just availability on some new architectures. You know, like Nutanix. It just makes things a little more both more interesting, more powerful, but also a little bit more complicated. So I thought that part of the conversation to me was really kind of fascinating. In fact, I think you brought up the question in, during the interview about metro clusters, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, you know, I, I shared in the interview that I looked after a, a geographically dispersed uh, Microsoft cluster, which um, gave us a, a lot of uh, headaches, but at the same time, uh, actually <laughs> actually saved us um, a number of times. So kudos to to the software and the infrastructure and um, all the folks that worked on it. So I think we're getting there. I, but like you said, there's a bunch of tools, lots of software, and we just got to get the, the mechanics right. Yeah, yeah. What also impressed me, I mean, is, is that Jonathan is a, a VCDX and how much it's important to have a trusted advisor on the vendor side to help out. It's interesting to me how much education he has to do. The man's a VCDX, right? He's a great consultant. He has a lot of training. You know, he's just seen more stuff. He's seen things, Angelo. He's seen things. (laughs) Which your typical IT person who's just lived in one or two data centers has seen. So that was also interesting because his breadth of experience that he could bring to the table about kind of what's happening. 
One last thing I'll share is he, he put an emphasis, uh, I thought, on uh, the planning side of DR. I know it's something we all we all say we do, and it's something that's important, but he, he, he seemed to really put an emphasis on making sure you had your T's crossed, I's dotted, which was uh, very important. BCDR of all the things that IT does, right? You've got to have your you've got to have your ducks in a row to use a different metaphor, but, uh, and your T's crossed and your I's dotted before you go forward, right? Because that's one of the more important things that you do. Yeah. So with that, let's get into the interview. Dwayne, John, and myself chatting with Jonathan Kohler. Welcome to the next community podcast. Today, we're pleased to have with us Jonathan Kohler. Uh, consulting architect uh, with Nutanix. Hopefully today we can kind of delve into some of uh, replication and disaster recovery, which seems to be a, a primary area that uh, Jonathan has worked over in the, the last couple of years. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to, to Jonathan to give a kind of a, a brief intro of himself and uh, what he's been up to lately. All right. Thanks, Dwayne. Yes, my name is Jonathan Kohler. I'm a consulting architect with Nutanix Global Services also referred to as GSO on occasion. Uh, I'm also a VMware certified design expert in data center virtualization, and I focus both on data center virtualization and disaster recovery and business continuity. It's my primary focus. I, I came to Nutanix uh, in August after working in various uh, both private and consulting roles uh, here in the Denver area. Absolutely loving it here. I noticed you've been uh, kind of picture man on Twitter lately with some of the deployments you've been working on. And I think the last one that you had posted out mentioned uh, a secondary site, which kind of got us thinking around the whole disaster recovery. You mentioned you've been doing it for a while. What are the customer conversations when you get engaged starting off? Because typically what I find is that there's usually needs to be a whole lot of pain before even a secondary site is spun up. I think there's two key paths into the conversation. There's crippling pain, like you mentioned, of saying, hey, you know, we lost something. You know, it could have been as small as a server or as large as an entire site. So now we need to roll back and really evaluate our business continuity strategy. Or entities within the company had had those experiences before and are coming into a new company fresh and kind of starting the conversation. Sometimes there's kind of an ancillary conversation of, hey, I've heard about disaster recovery, question mark, and, you know, I want to I wanna do DR, all the things. And that's almost the most interesting conversation <laughs> because... I want to protect it all. Yeah, because certainly that's a great ideal, but, uh, you know, that conversation usually leads into what are your requirements around uh, you know, recovery times, recovery points, how long can you be down, how much stuff can you lose, you know, realistically. And as you go through that rationalization process, you realize that what they were actually talking about was high availability and fault tolerance across data centers. And what they actually need is, you know, just a second copy of their data in many cases, yeah, so kind of two main ones with a, a, a small one, but that small one kind of tends to blow up pretty fast into a much larger conversation. Jonathan, this is John Troyer. Your comment strikes something for me. In 2015, what does a backup really mean? Is, is a backup still a functional, useful concept? Should people be thinking about this much more holistically? 10 or 20 years ago, you'd just buy some backup software. 
But now we're talking about replication and we're talking about RPO and RTO and, and snapshots and what is replication and are we talking about metadata or primary data or I'm, I'm frankly, I'm confused. And it is confusing, right? Because so if you if you take a, a step back and kind of look at the evolution of backup software from you know the precursors of the net backups and, and those types of software, I think now today, realistically, in, in 2015, that idea is kind of fading off into the term called archive, right? Because taking hours to back a server up, putting on some you know infinitesimally small and slow storage as efficiently as you can, um, whatever medium that's in, while that's certainly great for archive and compliance and stuff where you can just wait around, um, you know, given the pace of business in 2015, you can't wait, you know, usually 10 hours for a restore to complete start to finish. And you might not even have started that restore for hours or days, depending on the, the level of failure. So I think when you talk about like 2015 backup, it kind of blurs the lines in between what's been previously known as a snapshot and and kind of classifying some of those very space-efficient, very fast, very rapid technologies that were typically used for snapshots and using them to quickly restore. And I think it's where some of the power uh, in the Nutanix solution comes in, where you can have those things locally or remote or whatnot. But does that make sense? Absolutely. Clear up the confusion? Yeah. Okay. Jonathan, uh, are you seeing uh, a move or growth to active-active uh, data centers, or we still have the active and passive backup site um, out in the field? I have a conversation a lot, if that means anything. The problem with active-active data centers, just as, as a concept, right, is that that implies that everything surrounding the workload can also be active-active, the conversation from a virtualization and storage perspective is usually pretty easy of, you know, getting data from A to B and then running and executing those processes from A to B in a very fast manner that can be called active-passive or, or even a very active, almost like hot and warm. But a lot of the times the conversation kind of breaks down when you think about the use cases from a network perspective and a routing perspective and those types of things where you really have to, when you roll back and realize that those things can't always occur instantaneously for all applications, you then have to dissect it to say, okay, you know, do we have to have some sort of application awareness um, Mm -hmm. from a recovery perspective and then manage active active at that level instead of the infrastructure level? It's just, it's kind of a touchy subject. A lot of, like I said, a lot of conversations happen around it and, what often happens is that you go through that conversation and the customer goes, well, you know, I don't think I can really either sustain active-active from an operational perspective or from a cost perspective of what it's going to take to make things like network routing and uh, network reachability work on an instantaneous uh, basis. Coming, you know, prior to Nutanix and then coming in, if you like, how have your designs really changed um, coming to Nutanix is versus like a, a time perspective. Do you save a lot of time on the design side now or uh, still a lot of work? So yes, I think it does simplify designs to a certain extent, definitely at the infrastructure side as well as the data protection side because features work very well. It's easy to set up, maintain, all those things. But a lot of really deep and detailed designs Infrastructure is only a very small piece of it, right? A lot of those designs are attacking specific business 
and operational requirements where you know the infrastructure solves some of the problem but uh, you know some of the other problems uh, and I don't want to say problems necessarily but some of the other requirements are solved through other means whether it's uh, process improvements or automation improvements outside of the infrastructure but hyperconvergence, especially in Nutanix, it does make it easier, right? It definitely shortens that section up because you can have kind of this modular design. You don't have to slave over, okay, you know, will this storage array give me the amount of IOPS I need three years later? You know, how, how confident am I going to be in these numbers? Do I have to bake in, you know, so much growth up front? Uh, you know, with Nutanix, you say, well, you know, I can start with exactly what I need today and maybe six months worth of capacity. And then, you know, have an extensible design where you can plug and play over time. Um, so a short answer is, yeah, it simplified it for sure. But some of the same old problems outside of the infrastructure layer are still there. I was at a, a larger company, and we had brought in Infosys, and there was like just oodles of time spent on planning. I know at least from you know a storage and LUN layout, that kind of stuff gets washed. Um, and you get the kind of the ability to adapt, but I think for a lot of folks, it's like how how do I even get started into getting down a path of some form of higher availability? And what would you recommend for customers as far as tools, um, whether they be free or paid for? And that's like the other thing of DR. Um, I know we have some Nutanix customers too that they have one block. That's how they got started. Maybe that's their DR site, but they still have existing gear. So. How have we been helping customers on that side? If the workload that needs to be protected falls outside of Nutanix, our software is certainly not going to help them, right? Um, so, you know, there's other solutions, especially if they're virtualized, um, uh, such as vSphere Replication, which can do VM-level mobility um, at the hypervisor level. Um, whereas Nutanix provides that at the infrastructure level, so you don't even have to touch anything on the hypervisor. Certainly two valid approaches, um, which both get away from the strict map one LUN over here to one LUN over there, even though you know I don't necessarily need to protect all these things and you know, I have to put all the brain cycles into that. When you think about high availability and disaster recovery, a big part of that conversation is defining what you actually are trying to make highly available, right? So things like application mapping and application dependency discovery and service discovery um, are, are a really big part of that type of engagement because if you don't know what you're going to protect, how are you going to protect it? You know, unless you want to blindly say, I'm just going to put everything from here to here, but you know, how do you ensure consistency and those types of things? This can get confusing and muddy the store real fast. So... You know, customers really have to approach the high availability and DR design like they'd approach any good design, starting with kind of the conceptual, hey, here's what we want to do at a rough level, and then logically, here's what we need to do, here's the workloads we need to protect, and then physically, how are we going to get the work done? And really, that last physical, the how of it, it should be last, because you know, if you try to front-load it, it can make both designs and execution uh, very difficult. The marketing is definitely around per VM. Have you ever come across situations where that didn't work and sometimes you still need to protect ISOs? We have app volumes from VMware. Those aren't VMs. Uh, how do you go and protect those? Definitely, regardless of technology, you're, you're absolutely right. Sometimes the protection 
ugh, I don't mean to be punny, but sometimes the protection domain, you have to kind of take a step back from it, right? Um, and realize that a single VM is sometimes not appropriate. You know, is the whole volume where the VM sits appropriate? Maybe, maybe not. With things like ISOs and um, app volumes from VMware coming up, there's a lot of stuff that's not bound to the entity that is a VM that may you know, may very well be ancillary to the VM, but critical to the VM's operation. You know, from a how how things get done perspective, if the underlying technology can support, you know, lifting all those things and moving them at the same time, like Nutanix replication can, with uh, production domains being able to be, you know, per VM, multiple VMs, or even entire containers, that type of technology is, is huge. Right. So, so you're absolutely right. You know, sometimes the per VM strategy is not enough. And that's why that service discovery and, and figuring out what, what actually needs to be done before how it needs to be done is absolutely critical. That's an interesting point. So you can still pick files if they're in a container and still replicate them across. Yeah, absolutely. So you can do container to container mapping or individual file mapping as well. You know, we want to abstract that complexity from most customers uh, because the majority of customers are going to be okay with per VM replication or having multiple VMs in a single protection domain without any sort of ancillary files. But the the point is, we we do have the flexibility to support that very easily with a couple commands. Do you think having? Do you think for? separate data setters, whether it's two, three, or however many you're, you're operating, what's the value placed behind having the same software managing them? Like, I'm sure you go into a lot of sites where, uh, you know, IT's laden, you know, history has caused all sorts of problems, but it's also given us all sorts of jobs. So what is, is there a value to that that's easily kind of attainable? It's huge. Right off from the operational visibility perspective, if you're running the same things across the board, especially if those those p- softwares can kind of roll up into some sort of central pane of glass, it makes those things like service discovery so much easier because you can see everything from one place and, and rationalize things a lot easier. You know, when you have all these sites running you know, different platforms, different hypervisors, different applications and all these things, it just makes the job harder. It's certainly not impossible to achieve uh, some sort of higher level of availability or fault tolerance or um, disaster recovery protection with that hodgepodge of, of stuff that you know inevitably uh, every customer is going to have, right? Because there's, the environments get grown organically over time. But the more standardization that customers have, generally the easier I find the conversation to be of saying, hey, uh, you want to protect this stuff? Okay, it's you know, relatively homogenous. That just makes it e- makes it so much easier instead of having to, you know, fight multiple fight multiple battles at once. Do you happen to have like any interesting stories of kind of going down the the protect everything realm? What are kind of the the things people don't think about? Not at Nutanix yet, but in, in previous life, that has been very problematic. The problem with that strategy is. Inevitably, something gets missed, right? Um, even when there's a box that says select all, you know, select all my LUNs, select all my volumes, uh, and just put them over there. Right? The things that get missed are, let's say, things that are outside the virtualization environment that are critical, like a time appliance. I ran one into 
one particular situation where there was a handful of appliances, including a time appliance, which was critical to a certain application because it was updating its time constantly off this appliance, and the customer had set up their DR strategy to protect everything, but failed to have some sort of contingency plan for this time appliance, whether it was a secondary one that could be turned up really quickly. And when they went through the disaster recovery testing, they realized, oh, man, our entire plan just fell on its face because this key application wasn't able to boot. So it's, it's things like that that you know, it gives you that false sense of security where you, you, know, you tell the CIO, oh, yeah, yeah, we're replicating everything, we're all good. But in reality, if you don't realize that those dependencies are there within the environment, you know, the best laid plans can, can uh, go up in the wind pretty fast. Yeah, it kind of probably goes back to John's point around what's a backup, what's recovery. How much from a, a GSO perspective is engaged around doing doing runbooks or you know testing testing the plan out? Well, when it comes to disaster recovery, if there's a disaster recovery project, that's that's kind of automatically included. And maybe I'm kind of a hardliner, but uh, I don't consider a DR engagement done until there's a runbook. Right, so uh, because real realistically, it's useless without it. So whether that's codified in SRM or thoroughly documented and then partially codified in, in some scripts, if you're just relying on tribal knowledge and some smart dudes who had worked at the company for 20 years to execute these DR failovers, it's often problematic, right? Because uh, often DR are, are the worst times for your community. You know, sometimes it's just, okay, I just had a power failure, you know, it's affecting my data center and, and this stinks and i got to get this going. But sometimes it's things like hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and other, you know, natural or man-made disasters that, uh, you know, if you want your business to survive, you have to remove as much of the human element as possible because that human element might be removed for you. I mean, it's kind of morbid to say. I certainly don't want to joke about it, but you know, you look at kind of what's been happening in the IT industry in New York and New Jersey post Hurricane Sandy, right? People have been getting a lot more serious about this type of activity because they realize, you know, people are in their communities helping. You know, they, they're certainly still alive, <laughs> but those people personally sometimes have bigger things to worry about for them than rushing into the data center. So those are the types of things, conversations we have to say, okay, let's have a solid run book that many, many different people find accessible versus, you know, a handful of tier three engineers at a, at a company. So yes, is the short answer. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan, yeah. I'm, I'm also seeing, um, hearing from friends and, and former colleagues, cycling through the IT staff to do a DR. So you, you don't have the same people participating in a DR Everyone gets um, a certain comfort level with it, if you will, and um, the knowledge is is spread out throughout the company. So, yeah, I'm I'm hearing and seeing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Personally, I had that same thing happen to me when I was coming up in the IT world as a company that I worked at had done this very large DR setup with SRM and EMC Recover Point and other technologies and um, the lead architects. just um, kind of surprised me when the DR exercise came up and said, you're running this thing. Here's the book. Go for it. Hmm. And while I was kind of freaking out my, you know, personally, 
I think that experience from my mentor was very valuable um, to do exactly what you just said, is kind of cycle through. Even though I kind of had a white knuckle during that exercise, I felt extremely comfortable with the plan after the exercise was done, knowing that both he and I could execute it flawlessly if, if, if we had to. Hey, John, I've been hearing a lot about uh, metro clusters these days from, from many different vendors. And, and I suspect there's a fair amount of misunderstanding around them because I, I think people somehow think that they're magic, that they, they give you some business c- continuity benefits that they may not. Can you talk a little bit about what they're good and not good for and, and maybe some of the misconceptions around metro clusters? Uh, absolutely. So that uh, third use case that I mentioned earlier, I was talking about that kind of let's do it all, go get them, storm the beaches mentality. Usually metro clusters are part of that, you know, whether it's something like Nutanix metro availability. Um, it, it's, or, it's new. It's sexy. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, you know, it's, it's the newest feature. The we saw a blog yeah. on it. So, you know, let's get this thing at a prod to, to tomorrow. And realistically, it's like, well, okay. You know, it doesn't matter if it's NetApp's metro cluster or MCV Plex or IBM um, SVC's metro clustering capabilities or ours or, or anybody's, right? There is uh, incredible incredible amount of work that needs to go into these. Now, you know, there's something to be said for our particular implementation of metro clustering that that just makes it really simple to set up and you know, it's literally like you know, six, seven clicks and it's done versus some of the other architectures, but that that's kind of secondary to the point, um, which is what I was mentioning earlier. Yeah, met- metro cluster always strikes me as being at least this first generation or whatever generation we're on. I don't know what the right metaphor is, like a bicycle that's been extended to do two or three seats in it or like maybe a truck that's been jacked up 10 feet. It's like you're, you're, it seems still like you're kind of repurposing things for that they weren't quite originally designed for that. Sure, sure, sure. And that's, that's exactly right, right? Because the applications that you are running on these metro clusters or stretch clusters may not realistically benefit from that type of technology. Applications that just can't have any latency in between you know, their users and you know, their back end or things like that where you know moving it to another site just you know whenever realistically because you can be motion between sites can sometimes be really detrimental to the business at large. But you're you're right where it's just kind of this Abstracted thing. <laughs> well, um, when would you when would you actually want to use them? What what would be the right uh, requirements that would drive that sort of a design? You could say. Uh, so I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. But uh, one example could be a campus deployment at a university where they are just running their data center in buildings. Right? They might not be data centers. They could just be data rooms, which don't by themselves have very high availability. But stretching them between you know two separate power grids, two separate parts of a network ring, can really garner much much higher availability. And really, some people will deploy these metro clusters as simply a hot hot solution, where you know normally 100% of the workload runs in building A, and when it fails over, 100% goes over to building B, uh, and they're able to kind of fail over without any uh, without any issue. It's, it's it's certainly a good question, but you know it's these types of things which you know lead us down the rat hole a little bit of uh, you know very very long conversations on the, the 
the goods and the bads of these particular approaches and, and what leads many businesses to say, well, huh, maybe I could be okay with a solution that would uh, simply just replicate my data and, and turn it up within 15 minutes. I think some of it, though, has to do with just you're not going to go back and probably change the application stack. So if you can get that kind of degree of availability through it, then, you know, God bless. And then you're kind of, that's the easy way out versus probably like if you, you know, the new age applications that are kind of building that availability in them. That's probably not a, a needed feature set. Sure. Uh, sure. And that's often what happens. Look at the path that virtualization has taken over the years where, Old applications have been PDV'd, old applications have been just installed with their current architecture in virtualization, and they're not they're not site-aware. They can't necessarily be made to say, hey, we're going to run hot, hot, and then have instance A over here and instance B over here, and really quickly be able to, to fail over as fast as the infrastructure will. Like, that's a big point, is that even though metro clusters can get your workload from A to B extremely quickly, you know, within seconds or, you know, and oftentimes less, you're still looking at application restarts and how do you order that stuff and will your applications come up uh, correctly? How do you validate those applications when they come up and things like that? So it's, it's a good point. I think the the Europeans, just because of how, how tight they are within their kind confines of their country, Walls um, kind of probably have a bigger, bigger say with with Metro than at least in Canada because we're so far spread out that getting to the next possible site that would actually benefit you is probably out of the physical reach of uh, of a lot of people. Yeah, and that's that, that's absolutely a good point. And that's where kind of Metro clustering really first took off. It's in the MIA market where uh, they have data protection rules or laws in some cases where, you know, data has to be a certain place, it can't leave certain regions. So, you know, how do you actually have that that higher level of availability? Metro clustering is, is kind of the answer there. But I don't think it's the end-all be-all. I mean, sometimes it gets billed as, oh, now you're active-active, you know, you're running on the, the Ferrari of IT, everything's going to be okay. In the, the course of Dwayne's IT career, I think the the biggest enemy to availability has been myself. <laughs> Absolutely. If you can limit the amount of things that I have to touch, it's probably the, the greater way to availability. And I think even the Glory 5.9s, um, I think that's, that's basically saying, I'm not going to touch this gear and I'm going to let it run. Like I just ironically threw out um, a Windows 2000 uh, CD the other day and I was just thinking that, you know, I bet you some of the most highly available stuff today is running probably on 2000 or older <laughs> just because it, it hasn't been touched <laughs> forever. As long as that equipment goes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay there. Yeah, Dwayne, uh, yeah, I looked after a um, Microsoft 2003 file server cluster geographically dispersed between two sites um, uh, 30 kilometers away from each other, and we were – we were so afraid to to even sneeze on on those boxes because when, when that thing failed over, there was an active passive cluster, Microsoft cluster. When it failed over, in the beginning, it would take hours to replicate data, um, but over time, the, the you know the the company basically outgrew the solution, and the data would take days to replicate over. So you know it'd fail over to the to the backup site, take days to replicate, and then we'd have to fail it, fail it back over, and then it'd have to replicate back the other way. 
we would rarely do any, you know, firmware upgrades or OS patches on, on those things, which is we're just, just so afraid of what would happen. Yeah, and that's where that kind of typical metro clusters or historical metro cluster type solutions have been great once you get them up and running, but they you know quickly end up becoming that exact solution you described where it's like we're almost afraid to fail over because what if, you know, what if the cluster doesn't actually fail over, you know, the whole company is just about to pop, right? So it, that's that's another part of that that discussion that I mentioned of saying, you know, hey, let's get past the shiny exterior and dig into how this thing actually works, both from a technical perspective and more importantly, the operational day two type experience um, to avoid exactly the solution you just described. I think it's great that from Nutanix and just technology in general, we're kind of getting to a point though where uptime is to be expected. Mm-hmm. You know, what are some easy things people can do to get them on that path, whether Nutanix customers or not? On the path to higher availability? Yeah, like just yeah. even, like most customers today, or at least if I'm a SMB guy, I probably only have backups. Is there any way to incrementally get there? Yeah, sure. Especially with technologies like Visa Replication, which allow you to kind of get into things cheap and easy. You could certainly become familiar with the technologies. Uh, and maybe this is just my background being kind of prejudiced, but everything starts with a solid design, right? If you're just trying to white-knuckle stuff while you're in production, it, it tends not to pan out very well in the long term. My advice would be kind of really sit down and digest what the business is asking for and what you'd like to see and come up with a solid idea at a high level of what you'd like to be done and uh, just make up a requirements list. I mean, it, it almost seems silly, especially for a lot of IT practitioners to just sit down and make a list of their wants, wishes, and what they can, realistically can and can't do from a constraints perspective. And Jonathan, uh, that's like documentation. Never do that. <laughs> yeah, it's the nemesis of most IT people, right? They don't want to write stuff down. It's job security. Uh, really, when you're talking about disaster recovery, you're talking about the lifeblood of your business, right? You're planning for your business to not go up in smoke. And just like you uh, alluded to, you know, by the time you realize things are messed up, you could be very well out of business. And actually, I had a customer at Nutanix um, right before we migrated them to their Nutanix environment. It was a Hyper-V environment, actually. When I got there, they said, I've been working all weekend because my old environment was down and we almost didn't open our business today. And they didn't have any, they had nothing, right? And that's what Nutanix was there to help with, to start them on that path. But uh, sometimes, uh, you know, depending on how dire the situation, sometimes you just have to, Rearchitect it, burn it down, and build it back up again. I'm not necessarily saying you know throwing everything away, but uh, put aside previous ideas and, and really taking a hard look at the technologies that are out there to match your requirements list that hopefully you wrote down or at least remembered. Yeah, I don't think burning it up is necessarily a bad phrase. If it's the the same gear that you've had for seven years, <laughs> it might uh, it might be time for that. Yeah, sure, sure. And that's sometimes appropriate and sometimes not. The, the point is, if you've never been down the path before, you got to put a lot of thought into it and just make sure that you've kind of planned for every scenario. You know, sometimes I'll make an analogy to 
planning for to prevent house fires, right? If you've never done anything before, okay, what do you do? Plan your exits. Get alerting technologies like smoke detectors or sprinklers or those types of things, which are standard, but there's, you know, 50 different kinds of each of those technologies and which one works best. If you know that you need to protect yourself from fire uh, and that's your requirement, um, then you could start matching it up with the technologies to satisfy it. But if you just start randomly buying stuff, the house could burn down right around you and you wouldn't even know it because you're sleeping. It's kind of a morbid example, but uh, uh, no, it, it actually kind of makes sense. It makes sense to me because I think what I see from Nutanix versus other players in the industry, there's lots of band aid is going too far, but it's like a lot of software that gets you out of a jam, and so you can continue to do that and go by whether it's backup or DR to layer on top of of uh, other solutions, but at some point that still needs infrastructure to, to run on. And then, you know, how many different pieces of the puzzle are you trying to manage? So yeah, no, I think it's a good point. With that, we're getting uh, to the end here. Where can people stock you online and check out some of your, uh, your server slash geek porn that uh, you've been posting out? Uh, Twitter mostly. Uh, sometimes it'll make it, uh, out of the blog occasionally, but, uh, Twitter's Twitter's my main outlet for internet social media these days. And and your handle? It's uh, at John Kohler, J-O-N-K-O-H-L-E-R. Jonathan also spends time in the Next community answering questions, uh, helping folks out. So I've, I've noticed that too. So I wanted to put a plug there for, for the good work you're doing on the community side, helping uh, helping folks out with any questions they might have. Absolutely. And since I don't have to contend with... Uh, other users, I just have John on the community. <laughs> Makes it easy. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for your time today. Thanks, uh, Angelo and Troyer, for helping out today as well. Look forward to the next one, and uh, we'll keep track of your Twitter feed. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Next Community Podcast. Don't forget to follow Nutanix on Twitter for news and announcements. If you're interested in participating in the podcast or have a topic idea, email community at Nutanix.com. We also encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or even SoundCloud. I'm Angela Luciani. And I'm John Mark Troyer. We look forward to chatting with you again next week. 